You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom in Santa Fe. Soul Searching is a journey where I engage with an array of thinkers, from faith leaders to academics to artists, to explore deep questions of meaning, questions that all of us ask at some point in our lives, such as why are we here? What is right and wrong? Is there good and evil? Is truth relative or absolute? Is there life after death? And to help us in our journey this evening, we're very honored to welcome Josue Damien Martinez, who's a hip-hop artist, a steering committee member of Yucca, which is the Youth United for Climate Crisis Action, and also a recently graduated uh, student from St. Edmunds, uh, sorry, St. Edwards University in Texas. Josue, welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. And um, you were one of these people who were connected with the climate strike that um, has really taken hold in the public imagination. Um, so how did the September climate strike go for you? And, and what do you feel were its effects. Yeah, certainly. Um, so something to really have in context for people who haven't really been following our movement, um, just in general, the September 20th climate strike was a, a strike that was a part of a bigger movement. So throughout the world, we we knew that there were young people getting together to really strike in their in their cities, in their hometowns, to really demand their government to do something about our climate crisis issue. And that's what we did here. Now, the way that I looked is that we had we had different members from the steering committee who actually led these these uh, these marches, and we also uh, just inspired a movement. Not just us; it was the people all around the world. I would say, and that day, it was for my me personally, it was really the first time that I led something at that massive scale, right? And for a lot of us young people, there it was our first time. Uh, some of us were nervous, some of us were just kind of uh, we were ready for it, but we were, we knew we were ready for it. And so uh, the thing that it did, though, the effects that it had, it certainly sparked so much around the world. And about 7.5 million young people across the world were marching. And wow. we, we saw these numbers come really high. Um, in New Mexico, over 5,000 young people took part. This included Santa Fe and Albuquerque. Now, those numbers are big. And for many folks, it was their first time, like I had mentioned earlier. And we know that we were, gr- we were growing awareness and we were growing power, which is the most important thing that we really uh, were looking for. Young people were telling it like it is, that this is an emergency and we need to really act like it's an emergency. Immediately after, if we want to know about kind of some of the political pressure that we've been putting on and what effects it's had, uh, Senator Heyrich and Senator Udall, Udall both agreed to sign on to the Green New Deal. Right. Um, and in Santa Fe County, we passed a resolution declaring a climate emergency and supporting urgent action. The city of Santa Fe also passed a resolution. And the city of Albuquerque passed a resolution declaring the climate emergency as well. So these are two cities that we've seen immediate kind of actions taken after in response to our marches. Now, last night, October 15th, our counterparts in Albuquerque succeeded in getting a, a county, the county of Bernalillo to pass a proclamation declaring a climate emergency. Um, and now having elected bodies who acknowledge this climate emergency and are committing to rapid uh, reduce of carbon emissions are the critical first steps. Uh, because we know that when our politicians, we can hold them accountable. And so this is the way that we are holding them accountable. Now, for example, Michelle Lujan Grisham, our governor, issued an executive order uh, when she first took office, joining the U.S. Climate Alliance and committing to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by at least 26 to 28 percent um, below 2005 levels and by tw- 2025 now, right now, we have the largest oil fields in the world right. in the Permian Basin. 
Um, and we are pumping and pumping and pumping and moving uh, in the opposite direction, if I'm being frankly honest. If we pump out all that oil on the ground, emissions associated could cause as much as one more degree of uh, warming. Just from just our from our Yeah, just wow. from the way if, if we were to pump all that oil. And so understanding that one degree is a significant impact on yeah. the world yeah. and seeing how we can certainly move the other direction, um, it's important. And, and really, these are the, the effects that we've seen happen from the march. Um, yeah. So, I, I mean, it's all, it's, this is wonderful. When, when people declare, when states or cities declare a climate emergency, and you said that you can then hold people accountable, but it's very easy to run around and say, there's an emergency, there's an emergency. My house is on fire, my house is on fire. Someone else needs to put the fire out. What does it mean for you to declare a climate emergency, for a city to declare a climate emergency or for an area? What should they be doing with that? Yeah, most certainly. I think when cities declare emergencies, it puts pressure on the governments who are higher, right? We know, well, for people who don't quite understand how the, the powers and the functions of government it really is, it's at a local city level, goes to state, and then it goes to national. So when we make noise at the local level, which it should be, it starts just putting more pressure on political leaders who are in higher positions, of course. Now, though some cities in our state have declared an emergency, our state as a whole hasn't necessarily declared that emergency, right. right? And that's the pressure that we're putting on. For example, our governor hasn't declared a climate emergency. So putting that pressure, and, and yes, you could say, oh, we're having, we're having a, a climate emergency. Um, but to really treat it as an emergency, we have to see realistic steps taking to transitioning um, from what we just said and going the opposite direction. It's not all about just saying it. And, and just to make it clear, like the state has not necessarily declared an emergency, which is why we constantly keep pushing, um, because we want our governor to not only declare it, but uh, we we want her to take the steps necessary to transition. Um, and that includes uh, some of our, our demands. Yeah. So so you would say that the state of New Mexico has not done enough yet? I would say that the state of New Mexico still needs more to do. I will acknowledge the steps that have been taken, like the ones that I mentioned. However, we are falling behind. And the steps we are taking today, we should have taken 20 years ago. We should have taken years ago. This shouldn't have happened today or it shouldn't have happened a few months ago. We're already behind. So we have to constantly keep treating as an emergency until we actually start changing um, and, and transitioning to more renewable energies. I will say, okay, we're catching up. Even then, I would say we're catching up because as, as scientists have told us, we need to do this now, right? In the next 10 years, what we do within our communities is going to drastically affect the rest of the world. And that doesn't only apply, of course, to our state. It applies to different communities all across the country right. um, to see what they are doing. Um, but I want to acknowledge for, and it may possibly any political leaders listening, I acknowledge your hard work and I thank you for it. However, I believe that we still need to do much more than what we're doing. You mentioned, you used a really interesting word before. I don't know if you realized, you used the word demands. You said our demands. Yes. You didn't say our requests. You didn't say our uh, whatever it is that you, you know, our preferences. You said our demands. Um, I guess there's two questions that come from that. One, what are your demands? Two, who are you to demand? Okay. Yeah, of course, I'd love to, to answer that. So the to answer the first question, here are immediate demands, and you can find these on our website. And these are the demands that us uh, leaders with Yucca have decided we need this to happen now. The first demand is immediately declare a climate emergency in the state of New Mexico. 
That hasn't happened. Right. Second demand is to create a just transition fund from oil and gas revenues to support the research, the planning, the implementation necessary to end New Mexico's in, uh, dependence on fossil fuel revenues, to achieve carbon neutrality for our state by 2040, and to build a sustainable economy that works for all New Mexicans. And there are absolutely no more sacrifice zones. Um, number three is to pass a moratorium on fracking to protect our water and our health and to preserve the countless sacred indigenous sites threatened by fracking. Fourth demand is to pass community solar legislation by 2020. And number five is to ensure New Mexico is powered by 100% renewable energy by 2030. So these are our demands that we have set forward. Um, and like you said, they're not requests. They're right. certainly demands. Right. And what power do we have? I would argue that across the country, and not just us, you're seeing some sort of political revolution. You're seeing more, more progressive candidates, right, coming up. And and to be f- honest, if if for example our governor wants to stay in office, she's got to acknowledge that young people are going to vote more across the board. Right. More young people are coming out to get politically engaged. And so, who are we? We are young people who who's our futures are really at stake. And when we come together, it creates much more power than any other corporate entity that is donating millions and billions of dollars to political leaders. They don't hold the power necessarily because we can certainly outweigh them because of our numbers and the people that really want to come out. And that's who we are to really demand and make these demands. So what's interesting, and I totally agree, um, you're saying your demands come from the fact, firstly, that you're a voter, but then other people are voters and they might vote in a less environmentally friendly way. But I think there's something more, which is this, when you said this is our future, it's like the demand is that we've got the rest of our lives to deal with this and you don't necessarily. So therefore we demand that we have the luxury or the quality of life or, or anything that you had. Yeah, most certainly. And and a lot of young people across the country and across our state, they are, they're expressing this. And I think Yucca is a good example of young people coming together to create power. And to really hold the power within us and to reclaim that power and to really tell ourselves that it's really us who has had the power this whole time um, and just encourage other young people to see it that way. And when we come out in numbers, of course, I think it creates uh, it creates change. So so tell us about Yucca. What is what is Yucca? Yeah, certainly. So Yucca, um, Youth United for Climate Crisis Action, is a group of about, I always forget the numbers, it's like about 10 to 12 uh, of us young people coming together and coming with a mission to declare our climate crisis as a climate crisis, as an emergency. And so we've come together, and these this movement, I would say, it's something that's been kind of sparked uh, for the past two years now. We've seen sort of smaller movements kind of come up uh, trying to address this. And so Yucca is really this group of young people from all across New Mexico um, who have decided on these demands that I've mentioned and that really want to... Um, paint the narrative and to say this is an emergency, right? So that's, uh, to put it in short, that's, that's who yuck and this is who, who we are. What happens when adults, grown-ups, people in power say, I hear your demands, thanks very much? You know, and I'm asking that not as somebody who believes that, but, you know, as a parent of children, sometimes children make demands and I say, yes, but you don't know better. I have the experience, I have the wisdom, I have the whatever. So you can make whatever demands you want, but we're going to carry on doing this because I know better. (laughs) How do you respond to something like that? Because you must face that. You must hear things like that. I think that's a very, uh, if 
if any young person is being told, you don't know that, um, you, you probably don't know any better. Um, I think it's a very dangerous sort of thing for an adult. Who mm-hmm. even if you if an adult is going to consider themselves an ally, it's very dangerous to be telling young people that. Um, in addition, something that I've always because I personally have come across that conversation, these young people don't know better. Um, my response at times has been, "Well, if our adult politicians knew better, wouldn't this issue have already been addressed? Like, then what's going on? That's I need you. Answer. I need you. If you know much better." then why are we in the situation that we are right now? Right. And it certainly is because a lot of those people, I think to say that also comes from a sense of to acknowledge that these issues are not necessarily affecting you directly. And you don't see, maybe you don't even see the effect, which is easier for you to say you don't understand. Well, you're not going to feel the the effects in 10 years, but we are, right? So I think it's certainly, and and this can be, I think, very relatable or that type of vocabulary I've seen used in different groups with different issues, like, oh, you don't understand, or, oh, this. And I would say it, it comes from a sense of not really feeling the urgency. Mm-hmm. They don't feel the urgency that we do. Um, so that is certainly the way that uh, we respond. Um, and I would I also respond, you know, to, to our demands and to really bring it back to if you if that's what you really believe, then I want you to recognize that we hold the power, right? And right. if that's and and there are certainly other politicians who are advocating and are saying what what we definitely are asking for. So that's I think I that's mean, where the, we're. I mean, this is all tied in with the need for young people to vote, of course. Yeah, most certainly, and that's definitely part of it, isn't it? I do wonder if if part of the that response, that patronizing response, is because what you're suggesting is profoundly inconvenient. It requires very dramatic changes in our society and the way we work. And and so what I like to do is I, we'll take a break and then we'll come back and, and start exploring some of those changes and, and how inconvenient it can be and should be, perhaps. Okay, sounds great. So you're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil from Temple Beth Shalom. Uh, my guest this evening, Josue Damian Martinez, hip-hop artist and uh, steering committee member of Yucca and also recent graduate from St. Edward's University in Texas. And we'll be back after this break. Welcome back. You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil from Temple Beth Shalom in Santa Fe. My guest this evening, Josue Damian Martinez, hip-hop artist, steering committee member of Yucca, the Youth United for Climate Crisis Action, and also recent graduate from St. Edward's University in Texas. And Before our break, you were uh, we were talking about that sort of patronizing, who are you, your kids, you don't know, and, and you were talking about the power that you had. Um, and, and I mentioned just before the break the, the, the inconvenience of what you're saying because in, in some sense you are judging current society and I think totally appropriately just to be clear to say this isn't working, this isn't sustainable, this isn't good for future generations, you may not care but this will affect us and our children but this needs really dramatic change in society doesn't it yeah it certainly does i mean because when we're talking about living sustainably it's not just not pulling up oil or not fracking what we're talking about is economic change social change this is a big thing you're asking i'm not saying it's wrong i'm just saying do you do you recognize the power of i mean social transformation of what you're asking and and what is that because i think that's really important yeah of course um I think one thing that I've noticed throughout history and from from all my studies is that society in general, where people are afraid of change. Right. When we've been so accustomed to something, we we're we're just afraid to change because we don't know what effects it has. Um, 
to, to really address that question, and one of the reasons for why I myself got involved with, with a lot of this work is, first off, I noticed that when it came to the climate conversation, climate justice, climate change, uh, different terms have been used throughout, I would say, uh, when I first heard about the issues of the climate, it was first global warming. Global and now warming, like, it's, right? it's very interesting to see the, the shift and the evolving of, of these words. But I want to really touch on this economic mm. idea, right? Mm. One thing that I noticed is that for a lot of people who come from low income statuses, it's difficult to live sustainably because natural produce, uh, organic foods, things like that just becomes very expensive, right? And so some people, actually a lot of people are just living paycheck by paycheck. So when we think about what this does economically and what it's going, what transition is going to have, um, of course, like corporate entities are going to be afraid because it requires investment, right? It requires even investment from their part to really put money into this research, into what it's going to look like. Um, And then finally building the infrastructure because we don't necessarily have it. Um, But when you look at it long term, the amount of jobs that it creates um, economically and the amount of people it's going to take to really maintain these infrastructures, new infrastructures would be more renewable, Mm -hmm. right? It creates a new job market. It creates a new opportunity for the American people to really um, to really have right opportunities for jobs, and so this idea of like I know it's I know it's a bigger, but it's time to move it. And and one of the reasons for why I decided to join this movement was to be one of those people to advocate. Like I need you all to understand that us who are coming from low income areas, we want to also support, but because we're living paycheck by paycheck, we don't necessarily sometimes know how. And so that's what I think we need to be looking at long term, how it's going to economically impact people in those areas so that those people in those areas have access to more resources that aren't going to be damaging to to environments. Because it it does take also personal um, initiative. Of course, we can tell... Um, and we, we should be demanding our corporate entities and leaders to really be more conscious of what's going on and how they're going, how they're impacting our environment. Um, but people ourselves could do a better job as well, day-to-day tasks, um, and, and trying to do something, trying to do more to reduce our ecological footprint, for example. So, I mean, I think it's really important what you're saying about um, people from low-income families not being able to live as sustainably because um, the critique of environmentalism that I often hear thrown in my direction is that this is for rich white people, that this is a luxury, that you can choose to have your biodegradables and your, you can choose to have your very expensive um, hybrid cars and so on. Um, but actually, when, I, when we talk about this in more depth, those some, when you're talking about the, the changes that we can make day to day, a lot of these are tokenism. A lot of these, I mean, the, the, the saddest part about Al Gore's movie, An Inconvenient Truth, you know, going all the way through talking about the potential climate difficulties. And at the end, he just listed off these tokenistic things, you know, inflate your car tires, turn down, wear a jumper or sweater or whatever, you know, um, turn down the thermostat one degree and then the planet's saved. You know, no, that's, that's just not real. And so it's very easy for those who um, are, you know, affluent, those who, who, who are privileged to be able to say, but I'm green already. I do, I do my bit. I, I've, I've inflated my car tires. I've, I've changed my gas to, you know, a better gas and, and so on. Or I offset some emissions. But that's not really what we're talking about, is it? No, 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 certainly not. I think we're talking about more of a systemic change. Yeah. We're definitely talking more systemic age. And one of our demands is actually to, to hold um, our indigenous communities at the center of this conversation. Because though... People around different places in other countries um, are advocating because 
for example, some conversations that I've heard for young people advocating for this issue is it's going to affect me in 10 years. It's going to affect me in five years. The reality for our indigenous communities is that it's affecting them already. And right. it has been affecting them for the previous, uh, for the past years. Um, because a lot of these communities are close to infrastructures that are just damaging their health. Right. And the worst part is that Yes, it's bringing in revenue, but we don't see that revenue going back into indigenous communities. And yet our indigenous communities are still considered to be in low and impoverished areas. That's what our other frustration is, like what's going on here? What's going on there? Enough is enough in terms of our indigenous communities have already suffered years and years of oppression, years of massacres. And it's enough to it's, this is another one of the demands. And it brings frustration to myself, um, as well as a lot of people who are actually advocating for this movement. Yeah, environmental pollution is very often based around socioeconomic status and areas. Um, and that, I think, is part of the reason why it's difficult for some people to understand the climate crisis because their water supply isn't polluted and, and, and so on. And, and so we don't feel those immediate effects because we're, we're kept away from them, comforted by them. Are there, are there other areas, other obstacles, apart from people being separate from the causes, are there other obstacles to a sustainable society? Um, and how can we remove them? Uh, one of the biggest other obstacles is we really need to shift the narrative. I know one of the narratives and one of the things that um, oil and gas companies use to defend the extraction of oil is that a lot of our education, for example, mm -hmm. is um, a lot of our revenue for our education comes from it. Um, and I think we need to really shift that conversation because it just puts fear. It puts fear and it becomes one of the biggest obstacles, as a matter of fact, because you have a lot of young people or just people in general who aren't necessarily educated and they know and they, they, they know that oil and gas is used for revenues in our education. And so one of the arguments that they start, you know, talking about is, well, if you stop extracting oil, we're going to lose money for our education system. Right. Other thing that we've also pointed out is that you invest so much. Well, you say you invest so much in education, yet we're still 49th in the nation, right? It just <laughs> right. doesn't make sense. Right. It's just not lining up. What we're saying and what we say we're doing is not necessarily lining up with how our students are impacted in our education, how our students are graduating, right? And, and why it just doesn't really align. And so that's the other dangerous thing about and one of the biggest obstacles, actually, that I would say uh, we're facing. And, and that's why we're trying to switch that narrative, right? That renewable energies also means economic impact in a positive way. So Right. I mean, the idea, if you take money from me, I'll take money from you. Or I'll not be able to give you as much money. Uh, is it borders on blackmail, of course, but it also misses a basic economic fact of it doesn't just have to be you giving money. You know, if if the economy is moves away from oil and gas and becomes a sustainable economy, then that's what can give money to education. Um, but I think your point about, you know, where our state is in terms of education, we should be seeing a lot more of that. And I think the difference is the difference is between income and profit, isn't it? Yeah. So what's, what we're talking about is not that suddenly these oil and gas companies suddenly become poor because we know that's not the case. It's just that their profits aren't going to be as much. And so that's, that's their line, isn't it? You know, it's not going to take away from the billions that these companies earn. It's just the fact that they, weren't, they won't earn as many billions. Um, and so, so it's really about profit versus um, social justice in terms of um, responsibility from these companies, isn't it? Yeah, it certainly is. And that's a conversation that I've had with, actually I had a friend who uh, 
he's moderate, tends to lean conservative, though, and that's one of the things that I told him was these companies aren't going to, they're, they're maybe, well, what are they going to make? 900, they're going to make 900 million now as opposed to 1 billion, right? Like that's, they're still making a profit. Like right. They still really are going to make a significant profit. So it's just a matter of that, right, that change that we talk about them feeling uncomfortable with, but they themselves probably don't see the same revenue profit for themselves as opposed, you know, right, if they transition to renewable energy as opposed to what's being like extraction of oil. Right. And that comes back again, I guess, to the economics of the necessity of multinational corporations to um, pay dividends to their shareholders. And so if the shareholders turn around and say, why are we not getting as much money? Why are these shares not worth as much? Then there's an issue. But if the company is able to turn around and say, we have decided that we are going to still keep giving, even though New Mexico is now, let's say, moving towards renewable energy, we still value education in New Mexico. So even though we're not drilling there, we're still going to give them money because we value it. So that's going to reduce our profit margin. But at the same time, that's what we believe is important. If shareholders can be brought into that conversation, if they can be um, uh, told that the bottom line isn't just about maximizing profit, but actually giving to the community, even if the community isn't giving to you, which I think is a, a, a different kind of narrative, then I, I think that's also, again, part of the economics yeah, of this. Yeah, certainly. And I think economics is a very, especially if you don't study it in school, and I've noticed it's something that I've been trying to personally learn more of, but economics is a much more complicated conversation because you do, and that's one thing that I didn't really, um, I guess, didn't really think of like shareholders, right? And we know that companies have shareholders. And so that's, I think it's, it's, it's a, it's a very interesting conversation to also have. But I think at the same time, there's something very empowering about, about let's cut the nonsense, right? Let's, you know, the message that you're sending is this is really basic. Either we live sustainably or we don't live or a lot of us don't live or a lot of species around the world don't live or future generations live in a world that we can't even imagine right now. So I understand the complexities of your economic models and free market capitalism and, and so on, globalized trade. At the end of the day, all of that is irrelevant if it all collapses. And I think there's something very important about what you're saying in terms of let's let's cut this nonsense out. Let's get to the very core. And then you can say, ah, oh, but, but... There still needs to be a very clear message, yeah. which is your demands, I think. Yeah, most certainly. So very quickly, um, what do you need me? You know, I'm a rabbi of a large community in, in Santa Fe. I'm the co-president of the Interfaith Leadership Alliance. So we're in touch with lots of different faith communities. What do you need me um, to do to help you and Yucca? And, and also, what do you need um, other people? What do you need those who are listening? What what do you need us to do? Because I think it's come to the time where where the young people in our community are showing a lot more wisdom than they've often been um, granted or allowed to express. They're showing that wisdom and saying, follow us. So very quickly, what do you need us to do? Um, I think what we need, well, I think there's, there's uh, a couple of things that we, we do need. For our adults, I think... We need allies. Okay. We certainly need adult allies. Um, we also need allies in the sense that when we're given input, um, we want to be given input. But we also want our adult allies to understand that we want to sort of be the drivers, right, of kind of right. like the movement. Right. And it's not that we don't value, of course, opinions or, or input that's given. We certainly take that input. We take that input in. But 
we are realizing that this political revolution that I've noticed is emerging is coming from the young people, young people who are noticing more and are, and are coming out. Another thing that I would personally ask for young people uh, or for our adults is to motivate our young people. It's, that's one thing that I've noticed trying my best to sort of motivate young people, particularly on the south side where I'm from. Right. Adults, if you know your young people, I would say motivate them. Motivate them uh, as much as possible and, and kind of put them forward at the, at the center of kind of this conversation and as leaders who are, are leading the movement. In addition, please come support our meetings um, and everything else. Go to uh, climatestrikenm.org um, and you will find more information on how to get involved. Thank you. That's wonderful. You know, we need to listen to you, help empower you and and do what you need. I, I think this is wonderful. Josue Damian Martinez, thank you so much for being here this evening. Thank you. You've been listening to Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. Until we return again in two weeks time, keep searching.